0: The best performers, the ones who experience flow, are constantly looking for ways to get better. The more I can shine a light on the things that I did well, whether it was responding quickly to a complication that would have otherwise taken me way out of the game, that's how I'm gonna earn confidence. And then that confidence comes back to the starting line the next time I'm in the high stress situation that says, hey, this is not my first rodeo. I've been in these moments before.
1: Man, does that get the blood pumping. Welcome back, champions. This is Stimulus Episode 12, and I'm your host, Rob Orman. For those of you new to the show, what we do here is dissect techniques, and skills, strategies, tactics for a higher quality experience at work and life, getting away from just going through the motions, doing it with intent, just all around kicking ass. We do other stuff too, but that's the big picture, and today's show is all about Flow state. Got a little teaser there in the cold open. We're going to talk a lot about it. We're going to talk about operating at a level where you have complete focus and there is an automatic and almost effortless feel. Now, to be honest, when I first started looking into flow state, I was kind of hoping for the hack, you know, that you just do these steps and you're going to have flow. It's the workaround, you know, can I just tap into the flow? But alas, that hack, that shortcut, that blue pill, if you know if there is one out there you're not going to find it in this discussion this is about the path and the process to get flow how to get back into flow when you lose it and maybe even how to reproduce it and i think the thing i learned most in exploring this is that flow achieving flow having flow is just as much about knowing yourself as it is knowing the skill if that sounds odd don't worry we're gonna get into it and to that point our guest today is performance coach Jason Brooks. Now you might recognize that name. You might recognize the voice that we had in the opener there from episode four of Stimulus, talking to fear. For those of you familiar with ER Cast, you have heard Jason many times. Now, Jason is the only person that I know that when we just talk on the phone or on Facetime, whatever, just catching up, whatever the topic, I have my notepad out and I'm taking notes because he's just dropping pearls of wisdom. I met Jason many years ago because he works with and coaches physicians, but he also works with athletes, police, high-level performers who operate in high stress and demanding arenas. And before this recording, when Jason and I were getting things ready, getting our audio set up, I asked him just kind of as an aside, I had never asked him this before, who are your clients? You know, like you're a performance coach who calls you up and says, here, I'd like some coaching. And his answer surprised me. I thought it was going to be just kind of some pat elevator pitch, but he paused. He said, you know, it's someone willing to do the deep work. Someone who's either stuck in a way that they want to get unstuck or is a high level performer who wants to achieve a higher level in work or life. Yeah, maybe it's both. And as far as what's coming in the conversation today, we go over a lot of ground. You can see the main points and timestamps in the show notes on your podcatcher. Or if you want complete detailed show notes, you can go to our website, stimuluspodcast.com. There'll be a link to it on your podcatcher show notes too. And here's some of what we discuss. It's not all of it, but some of the big points. The difference between flow state and being in the zone. The connection between skill level and flow state. Hard to get flow state when you're an abject beginner. Managing task irrelevant stimuli. That is not a term that I had heard before this conversation, but such an important aspect to flow. You know, not only separating the cognitive wheat from the chaff, but focusing on what's important and then dulling the background or unhelpful noise. And just to prepare you right out of the gate, we talk about something not quite so high-minded. We talk about a TV show, The Last Dance. And if you haven't seen it for reference, it's a 10-part series on ESPN about the 97-98 Chicago Bulls championship season. All right, enough of prime in the pump. Let's get to it. Jason Brooks and the flow state.
0: What did you think of the last dance? One of my clients said that they could do an entire uh, Harvard business review on every episode. I was mesmerized by it. And for a variety of reasons. Number one, it was to be honest. I mean, here I am in my late forties, it was a time capsule of sorts. Right. And the music. Right. And, you know, I remember I was watching all of those games during that era. And I was a huge Michael Jordan fan. I mean, just for his brilliance. But just to have had the all access glimpse behind the machine to see what you don't get to see, to see how. Just the sheer volume of distraction and noise and ridiculousness they had to deal with as a team, as individuals, to see how someone who you can say arguably is the greatest of all time at what they do, yeah, what an amazing opportunity to get a a peek into that psyche. That was one thing that really struck me, and I'm not sure who the guy – said it was i think
1: it was like one of jordan's biographers or some somebody that wrote about him or with him or that de- definitely knew him and like before i watched that i thought oh michael jordan is the best in the world because he came that way right he was the best in the world born that way and it, and then all these other coaches saying yeah he wasn't great you know he he just worked at it and then the biographer said that jordan's superpower was that he was 100 present in yeah. every moment every game, he was always on. And he's talking about, you know, people spend their lives like meditating, going to ashrams and doing all this stuff so that they can even get a glimpse of that. And Jordan had it all the time. That kind of came at a price. I think that came at a price for him personally. It came at a price for the experience of his teammates, but arguably that ability to just be in the zone was
0: the key ingredient to his excellence. I thought that was amazing too, that of all the things, as you say, that you could point to, that that person had that particular attribute, if you will, that separated him from all of his other incredible strengths and abilities. And it's so true. I mean, he was, Michael Jordan's a finisher, you know, he was a killer. He was a pure scorer. He was the person that not only that you would want to have taking that last shot, he wanted more than anything to take the last shot. And if you're able to be in air quotes, the big moments, and yet they don't feel like any sense of a a threat or an opportunity where you could be exposed or to fail and and, and feel the horrible feelings of that and letting your team down, he didn't have any of that. It was just an opportunity to execute what he did and to take it further, an opportunity to win, to get the result, to go on often psychologically. To to close the show, and that is an incredible set of attributes to have in someone who's leading your team or leading your organization or leading a resus, let's say that just that sense of being unflappable, that sense of pure equanimity in the pressure moments, incredible.
1: I want to talk about being in the zone and the and the flow state. Actually, are those are they the same thing?
0: Feeling the flow, being in the zone. There are differences. For our purposes, it is a—it's pretty much splitting hairs. But for the sake of discussion, Bob Nidafer—I'd sent you an article. He—he he does a really great job at breaking this down. And Bob Nidafer is uh, iconic performance psychologist in the U.S. and and his research in and around the ideas of focus and flow are some of the best. But he differentiates the two, basically saying that look, being in the zone is more often equated with physical performance, where there's an actual observable result. You know, I played my best. How do I know? Not only did I feel good, I scored more points than I normally do. Our team was more dominant than it was. You know, I finished that surgery 37 minutes before I would have otherwise. So the zone is more often associated, uh, relegated to physical performance. Being in a state of flow, however, is more to do with the mental performance. And I would differentiate it this way you could be in a state of flow gardening but i don't think at the end of your gardening session you're going to break down your performance to see where you could have been better and <laughs> critique the way you handled that spade or, or whatever it was it's just you know being perfectly immersed in a moment but what not without that necessarily getting the the result aspect of it There was a TED talk
1: or there is a TED talk by one of the researchers. I can't remember. It was a really hard to pronounce name or at least hard to spell name. One of the guys who investigated flow states and then how to get there and what it is. And one of the things that he focused on was that this happens when maximal skill meets maximal challenge. When you are right at the edge, but still within your capabilities. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, seem mundane, you know, you can still bring maximal skill to it, you know, approach it as if this is a maximal challenge. And it seems like to have a flow state, you need to come to the situation with a certain level of knowledge. What from the outside would look like mastery of the skill or mastery of the craft. like oh that person really can do that almost without thinking and you sent me that article about getting into the zone or the flow state and i'm going to quote from it said it's quote a feeling of being in control of things without making any conscious effort to do so yeah and there is no shortcut to getting into the zone or flow states the more time you have put into the development and refinement of the skill, the more likely you are able to getting into one of these altered states of consciousness. Right. Is, there, is there like a sequence of events or mental steps that someone can take to make the likelihood of getting to the zone or likelihood of getting into a flow state more likely than not?
0: By definition, these states, they're extraordinary moments where we're just that immersed and there's a lot of things that have to fall into play for us to experience that fully you mentioned obviously you have to have a requisite level of skill no amount of confidence or belief in myself someone who's never done anything in emergency medicine would prepare me for going into a recess i am not going to be in any state of zone or flow there I'll be in a state of sheer and utter panic. I don't I don't have the chops to be in that moment. So certainly we have to do some work to earn the skill. And it sort of seems to me that my job is, is rather to sensitize people to the ways in which they can engage in certain practices that will allow greater possibility of experiencing something called flow. But then secondly, we recognize that in any performance, and I don't care – you pick anybody who, who, let's say, has had just the performance of a lifetime, I guarantee you there will still be moments in there where they drifted in and out of that heightened state. And so for me, it's as much the important factor is to figure out how do I get back into a more optimal state when the natural and probably unavoidable distractions that are everywhere begin to hijack my focus and attention away from the task. So it's not about you know, doing something specific that's gonna guarantee I'm just in this constant state of flow. No, it's recognizing that's a pretty hard situation to get to, I better make sure I'm doing everything I can to accentuate my skills and abilities to have a chance that that's possible. And then not if, but when the inevitable distractions take me away, how quickly can I get myself back? I wanna
1: get a little bit more into how to tap into it. And first off, you know, with the skill level, is that more of your perception of what your skill level is? Does it just take a basic level of competence in the thing to be able to get to the flow state? Or is it now you have to have an expert level of skill so that
0: you don't even have to think about the steps. It's just automatic. Right. See, and that's a really important thing that you've laid out because I sort of see it as it is a sort of a sequence of events, but it's not linear. Each thing affects the other. So you say to yourself, okay, well, what happens if I have great skill? What would that do in terms of my ability to maybe experience a flow state more readily? Well, if I have great skill, that means to your point, much of what I'm doing is pretty automatic. So I'm not having to think about doing the things that I would just do. So by virtue of that, by virtue of not thinking extraneously, I'm less distracted internally. I have more bandwidth available for the task at hand. What does great skill do for me in addition to that? Well, if I feel I have a high level of skill that's that's at least capable of handling uh, or effective for whatever is going to come at me, I have greater confidence that I'll be able to navigate through. If I have greater confidence and trust in my abilities, what does that do? It either helps minimize the voice of resistance in our head that can poke and pry at our confidence and raise all manner of doubts and fears and, and worries about the future and, and all that sort of thing. The more confident I am, either the less I will entertain those thoughts, or if I start to entertain those thoughts, I have a whole wealth of evidence I can turn to that says, hey, what's going on right here? You know, I'm starting to feel as though I'm overmatched and I'm not ready. What's the truth? And the truth is, listen, I've been in situations like this before. I do great preparation. Yeah, it's it's a tough scenario. I've not not been in tough scenarios before. So because I have that confidence factor, that can also be used to minimize distractions.
1: As you can tell so far from this conversation, there's a lot of info packed in here and it can be hard to absorb in one sitting, you know, feel free to listen to this in segments. Refer heavily to the show notes. They're gonna be your buddy here. I'm gonna recap a little bit here right now. And I'm also gonna do it in 10 minutes just to give a pause to lock in some of the high points. So flow state, a feeling of being in control without making any conscious effort to do so. There's different definitions, there's different approaches to this. That's just the one that we're working from today. And as Jason said, these are extraordinary moments. To fully experience it, there's a requisite level of skills, not just believing that you have, it's actually having. And a belief helps, but it's gotta be backed up by the chops. No chops, flow is gonna be pretty unlikely. So you wanna do everything you can to accentuate your skills and abilities to make sure that flow is possible. If you have great skill, much of what you're doing is automatic, less distracted internally. You have greater confidence that you can navigate the situation. And from a personal perspective, early in my career, I had a patient die because I couldn't secure their airway. It was just such a catastrophically horrible moment in so many ways had ripple effects still to this day. And needless to say, my confidence was shaken and any resuscitation where an airway was involved. I mean, that's one of the core skills of an emergency physician. I mean, those were nervous times. Not sustainable. That's not good care either for the patient. So to accentuate my skills and abilities, I mean, this was the first thing was just to undergird the skill. I took an airway course. I read books. I rehearsed the skills, both physically and in my mind, at least once a week, visualized a difficult airway situation. Listened to countless podcasts on airway management. And this was a continuous project over decades. It was building up physical dexterity, maintaining that, improving on it, and continually keeping up my strategic approach to the point that the act of intubating in a difficult situation, the strategies to do so, and then the seven steps ahead of that became automatic. As Jason said, having the confidence minimized distractions. But something that wouldn't be so obvious on the surface to get to that flow state is frankly just loving what you're doing, having joy in your job or whatever the task.
0: If I love what I do, you might think, okay, what the heck does that have to do with flow? It has a lot to do with flow because in that moment where I'm starting to feel the pressure and starting to doubt and starting to worry and starting to wonder, I'm asking myself, why the hell do I even do this in the first place? Right? And I'm questioning that at an even higher level, causing even more distraction now. And if I can step back and have an answer that says, look, As a matter of fact, this isn't about me in this moment. This is about the mission, the case, the situation. As long as I make it about me, I am getting in the way of something that is a hell of a lot more important than me. So even just having that mental tug of war and challenging myself to hold myself to a higher standard of self, I'll probably be able to minimize some of that distraction because one of the things, Rob, by and large, the distractions we're talking about that can be disruptive to performance and certainly kill flow are the internal ones. You know, that voice in our head that's bringing up the doubts and the fears and, yes. and yes. the worries that and et cetera. Perfect. And I wanted to, to ask you about, you know,
1: talking about loving what you do and when you enjoy it, you're almost floating state. And I've got a couple questions questions on, on, on what you're just talking about. One is self-doubt. There's so many ways to approach this. There's kind of like the Dunning-Kruger aspect of it, where maybe you should have a little bit of self-doubt and humility <laughs> so that, you know, you approach this cautiously versus if you have too much of it, you're going to constipate and clog your brain. Yeah. So where does self-doubt have a role in achieving the flow state
0: or being in a flow state? And maybe it doesn't have a role. Well, I think in terms of preparing ahead of time, it helps keep us honest That built-in humility check that keeps us honest to keep doing the work, to keep doing the preparation. You know, it's very easy after a while of time, let's say you have a a certain level of experience, you know, maybe just maybe we aren't as diligent with the way that we prepare, you know, our our morning routine or our pre-shift routine or, you know, looking over our notes about certain cases that, you know, might be challenging or what have you. Maybe, just maybe we start to ease off from doing some of those things. And so when we start to experience the doubts, sometimes they're legitimate. Sometimes the doubts are, hey, Rob, I don't think we're doing as good a job readying for these things as we should. And in those situations, maybe some of the doubts are justified. But I think by and large, the doubts that we more often experience are just in relation to our perception of the situation. And when we're under stress and when we are fatigued and when it's time sensitive and all the rest, and the amygdala starts firing the ability to think rationally about our current circumstances becomes really compromised. And we're much more likely to think in emotional terms. And the emotions we're experiencing in the moment are fear, uncertainty, anxiousness, et cetera. And those emotions are going to trigger a certain narrative of thinking, you know, this is too much. I'm not ready, et cetera. And so for me, there's two things you can do. You can, you can be aware of yourself and recognize ahead of time, Hey, when things get hairy in however you would describe that for yourself here's the way that my you know train goes off the proverbial track so what are the things that i need to preparing ahead of time to catch myself to be aware of those thoughts and then what are the things i can do whether it be you know resetting my arousal level to a more comfortable baseline whether it be challenging those thoughts whether it just be disregarding those thoughts recognizing okay this is just fear doing what fear does it's not going to help me and I can look beyond that and, and shift my focus back to the task, back to the things that I actually can control. And when I start to see the circumstances in that way, I recognize I don't have to be fearful of the distracting thoughts. Good luck with trying to fight them anyways. You're just going to inflame them. But I do have to be ready to meet them. And I'll, and I'll go back to something you said earlier, Rob, that might be taking us too far back. But we can we can circle to where we are. You had mentioned something to the effect of uh, skills, if I just hammer down on being the most skilled person in whatever my thing is, whether you're a basketball player or an emergency medicine physician or anything in between, if I just focus there, will that overcome all the rest of the stuff that can interfere? And absolutely, it cannot. But I would like us to expand our conception of what it means to be highly skilled. And the reason that's important is, is that if I was to say to you, no, Rob, that is the pathway. What you must do. As an emergency medicine physician, you must identify and come up with a running checklist of all 73,000 situations you've never been in, and by virtue of never being having been in them, they're going to stress you out and you're going to need to know how to respond. Nonsense. I don't need to be aware of that. I need to be aware of and skillful at when something comes up that causes me to become distracted on the inside, regardless of what the thing is, how do I steer myself back to being more present. Okay. I got to pause you there
1: because this makes me think about something that I experienced in medicine, experienced in sports. And I remember there was this guy in college who was the best free throw shooter I'd ever seen. I mean, obviously there's great ones in the NBA, but I'd never seen in person. And I remember watching him in this game and the opposing fans were like yelling and jumping and it almost seemed like they were in his face. And- it's like a game winning free throw. I was like, doesn't that whole situation just kind of get in your head? He said, nah, I just take the free throw. As opposed to, I can remember being in games and I'd be ahead. I wasn't very good at tennis, but let's just say tennis. I I used to play that in college with my buddy, Clay Finley. And so we played tennis and whenever I was ahead, I didn't even really care if I won so much. I just, it was just fun to play tennis. And so the stakes could not possibly be lower. Whenever I was ahead, I was like, oh, I got to hold on to this lead. Nine times out of 10, I lost. In that article, you said the task, the relevant stimulus, the distraction, or, you know, you're in the basketball game and you look up at the scoreboard and you think, oh boy, we're ahead by three. We got to hold on to this lead. And then just everything just falls to, falls to crap. You were speaking in general terms about that, but let's, let's take the, and the, you know, golfers get the yips if they're ahead. So let's, let's talk to that person. They're a PGA golfer. And whenever they're ahead and they're putting for the win, they always blow it. And when they're behind and they just don't care, they always sink it. So how would you deconstruct that moment for that golfer to say, here's what's going on. And here's how you get back to that state. There, there's no task irrelevant stimulus. There's no distraction. It doesn't matter. You're just
0: playing because you're playing. But there's the biggest task, irrelevant stimuli going, and that's yourself. <laughs> you know, your own voice, that's the biggest enemy. The first thing I like what you said there is step back from that experience and, and dissect it and say, okay, what, what exactly was the shift that took me from performing out of my mind, I guess we could say literally and figuratively, to all of a sudden I'm inundated with these distractions and doubts and fears, and now I I can't perform to my potential. And it is that. It is the attentional shift from external to internal. That's what self-distraction theory is. I become aware, self-conscious of, my own inner dialogue, emotions, et cetera, That are not only running counter to what i want to be experiencing right now but that are taking up bandwidth and shifting my attention away from the external cues that if i just put all of my focus there that's what's going to guide me through as soon as i start to overthink and become self-conscious i am now in the way of performing to my potential and so you say well what is it that i need to do i need to figure out what are the moments where that happens what are the distractions That I am prone to, what particular times, what is the dialogue and or the emotional experience that starts to take over me there, and then the preparation that I'm doing ahead of time is both to catch myself if and when it occurs, and then secondly, to be able to respond effectively. Again, if I had some mantra I could provide for you and all your listeners, Rob, that just simple say this three things and click your heels and distraction goes away <laughs> it's not that easy it goes back to your earlier point that you know to achieve heightened sense of focus in a pressure moment it takes a shit ton of work to steal your mind to be ready for that experience and so it's just gently practicing over time recognizing when the distraction occurs stepping out and away from it temporarily i mean on the golf course that could be something so simple as just putting your club back in the bag and you've seen golfers restart or a better example you know let's say in the middle of a backswing and someone flashes a camera you see those golfers who just very calmly stop their swing step to the side and they just restart the entire you know kind of pre-shot routine process they've readied themselves to be in that moment i'll guarantee you when someone flashes the camera, their instant reaction is F-bombs on the inside and what a jerk and, and all the rest. But they're ready to face those thoughts and feelings with a strategy that helps bring them down. So that, to me, again, the key is what are we doing ahead of time to recognize that there are moments like that that can occur and when they occur, rather than fight them or succumb to them. I need to figure out what is the strategies I can be rehearsing ahead of time, such that the brain knows what to do. You know, you're fond of saying, "I think it's the mantra from the military." You know, we we sink to the level of our training. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. But I also am aware of certain situations where just by sheer virtue of the the pressure that they come with, that's not going to be enough for me. Like you said earlier, there's been tons of times you had the skill and the training, but your head was so far to the game you couldn't execute. So we need to be aware of what those moments are and how I, as a human being, react to them such that I can begin to reverse engineer that and and plant better expectations for the moment. And, And that's the rehearsal strategies. Part of flow is knowing what will take you out of
1: that state and having awareness of how you will be influenced by distractions. In the last emphasis, about 10 minutes ago, I spoke about airway cases and then how I got into flow by taking certain steps to get to a heightened skill level. But let's be real. It wasn't like I was always in it. I was often out of it and I would be taken out of it by a few things. One of them was a lot of information coming in at once. Things that you could think of as task irrelevant stimuli comparative to the task I need to do right now, which was putting a tube in the trachea. And I would start to feel a little bit of anxiety, some of a sympathetic state coming on, get a little shaky. When it got to macro during that focus procedure where I needed to be micro, it took me out of flow. And the reset technique that I started using to come back to that moment was incrementalization. That's something I learned from Rich Levitan. Some of you may know him, know his name. He is just the airway management guru of gurus. And when the macro overwhelmed the need to be micro, I doubled and tripled down on the micro, taking the steps of intubation in a stepwise progression said only the next step was in my mind. All right. I need to hold the blade like a wine glass, very gently with just these fingers. Okay, that feels right. I need to open the mouth this way. Okay, I'm going to put in the blade. What's the first thing I see? What is my target? That's the only thing that's important right now, focusing only on the next step. And that brought focus back to the exact task. And that then reaccessed the automatic nature, which had previously been disrupted. We were talking about the automatic aspect of you're in this flow state, and I can think back to resuscitations. I can see them in my head where I was just in it, and sometimes just in it for hours upon hours. You know, I'd go back to, uh, to the other patients, some of them, and then come back to this recitation and that whole time was just in it. And I don't know how this fits into the psychology of it, but you know, you've got your system one thinking, like your your automatic thin slice just. Gut reaction thinking, and then your system two, right? Your thinky thinking. Yeah. And system one, to me, when I hear automatic, I think, oh, that's system one. But when I think about the times, at least when my my cognitive skills were were put to the test, it was that I had, or at least I felt like I had, system two thinking with complete clarity. There was nothing else. And all I could see was the entire pattern and the entire path before me, there was no fear, there was no doubt, but it was still system two.
0: Yeah. And still didn't know exactly what to do, but you weren't adding to an already challenging situation by virtue of now taking your, your head out of it. It's true. You, You don't
1: always know the right answer of what to do because you can only find that after the fact, but I always knew where I was. I don't know if that makes sense. It's like,
0: I it always makes- perfect sense that that is huge because that puts you in a state whereby the very best that you would have to give that you can access by virtue of your skill, your experience, your know-how is available. That is the very best that we can do. I, I can't summon ability and experience I don't have, but by virtue of what I'm thinking and how I'm feeling, I can get in the way of skill and ability that I do have. You were in a state of mind where that interference wasn't strong. So it allowed you to have every ounce of your potential on the table. Now, I come
1: to you and I say, that was the best I've ever felt as a doctor. I wanna feel that way every time. It always felt like it happened by accident. How do I make that something that's not an accident that I can tap into? What what is the process that I am setting things up for me to be in a flow state?
0: Nice. I like that. And so you work backwards again from sort of the component parts of what it would take to be in a flow state based on the uh, research. So if you look at the component parts, so obviously from a practice standpoint, we know that there's direct relationship between our skill level and necessary uh, to be able to combat against whatever the particular level of challenge. There has to be some synergy there. If the situation commands much more skill than I have, it's going to be very difficult to get into a flow state uh, because I'll be distracted by the fears I have knowing I don't have enough skill, which will erode my confidence, which will distract me. So what one of the things I need to do is if you want to experience more flow, you got to get really good at your shit, <laughs> whatever it is. So we're constantly looking for ways to improve and perform and it's funny, I, I can bring this back to the Last Dance documentary again, when you see someone like Michael Jordan. I mean, this guy has achieved every single thing you possibly could achieve, and yet in his final year, he is as maniacal about his preparation as he was in year one. It, staying consistent in terms of how we prepare, not taking that for granted, continuing to have goals that we set for ourselves to achieve an even higher standard of performance, whether it's something technical whether it's as an educator, whether the the standard we want to up for ourselves is in how we respond to difficult and challenging sets of circumstances, the best performers, the ones who experience flow, are constantly looking for ways to get better. The way that they practice warrants some discussion too. You brought up the idea of deliberate practice. That's what it is. Um, Some of the work that I've done, let's say, with tactical law enforcement, you'll look at some of their training and, you know, let's say they're doing a bus situation or they're practicing, maybe uh, uh, having someone who's taken a hostage on a bus in the old days, they would set up an eight hour block and they would just rep that thing hundreds of times, maybe not hundreds, but however many they can get in eight hours. And yet nobody ever gave any thought to how quality are these reps by the third rep more often than not, the the team members are kind of going through the motions So you step back and you go, well, wait a sec. How is the way that I'm practicing there contributing to better performance in real time if I'm not approaching the practice with as much fidelity as I would be experiencing in real time? So it's better maybe to do a third of the reps and debrief after each rep and say, okay, let's really sort of get into character, if you will, before we attempt this next rep. Because the more accurate i can make or the more i can approximate the practicing to the reality the more likely that that's how i'm going to perform in the moment so how does this lend itself to what we're talking about if one of the things we want to get better at is performing under high stakes situations when i'm doing any type of simulation or rehearsal i better make sure that i'm allowing myself to feel what that's like and so watching netflix as i'm half visualizing performing under pressure that's not going to do it. If I turn off the Netflix, allow myself to sit down and literally put myself in a scenario that scares the shit out of me to the point where I can feel the armpits getting sweaty and the heart starting to rise. That's the baseline I want to start to now rehearse from because that's going to be more realistic. So the practice, both in terms of consistency and quality or deliberateness is, is first and foremost. Secondly, I have to be aware of what some of the distractions are for me. Many of the distractions could be external in my environment. Let's say in the middle of a a recess, for example, you're someone that if it gets to a certain level of intensity, you would prefer that everybody is silent. So if that's the case, I can do certain things to ensure that my external environment is as distraction-free as is possible. I'm not going to eliminate everything, but I could make a point to say, hey, team of the day, And just so as you know, this is a pretty intense one we're stepping into. If I get to a certain point where I'm really hyper-focused, I appreciate when it's silent. I could even go so far as to give a, a, a hand signal. You know, when I give the thumbs up, what I'm really saying is, could people just be quiet until a period of time? So if I'm aware of what the distractions might be in my external environment, maybe there's some creative ways in which I can set that up or protect against them affecting my focus. More often than not, it's the internal distractions. So I need to sit down and figure out what are the things that occur that disrupt me? Is it distracting thoughts? Is it a a strong physiological surge that interferes? Is it bringing in unnecessary fears and expectations from the past? I mean, you know, you see this all the time in medicine. By the end of residency, we've so effectively convinced ourselves that we're imposters. And now that you're an attending, go on and confidently into the world. Well, wait a sec. I've never allowed myself to feel that way. So I have to be aware of that voice in my head and the way that it talks to me in those moments, because that's revealing to me the kinds of distractions that I need to rehearse better responses to. Again, whether it's just being more mindful and meeting those thoughts with some evidence to the contrary, whether it's catching myself and shifting the emotion, but, you know, sometimes the Either the proverbial bring myself in and show myself compassion or the proverbial kick my own ass, uh, let's go, this is not about you, whatever the case might be. So being aware of the distractions as best as you can and, and how you typically respond in certain conditions is another practice we can get better at. And then once we know all that things, having some strategies to up or down regulate our arousal levels. Once we get too amped up in that state, that's gonna trigger the distracting thoughts, the loss of confidence, et cetera. So I like to describe it as, and maybe we've talked about this before on your show, I'm not, I'm not familiar, but to me it's like a tachometer in that to be in a, a state that we might suggest is flowish, I don't have to feel like a Zen Buddha all the time. A lot of you in your field have performed exceedingly well under really challenging circumstances. So it's not like you're sitting in there just this loosey-goosey state. There's, there's a lot of tension under the surface. What I have to be aware of is at what point does that tachometer start to redline? Because that's when it interferes. But if I can catch myself and downregulate my arousal 10%, I might still be running a little hot. But I would know from experience I have performed in many, many moments – where it's been a little hot and I have been a-okay. So part of it then fuels into confidence that I trust in my ability to dial down from the red line to a still high RPM and that when I'm in that space, I'm okay in terms of how I perform. So those are some things because that then dovetailed into the final thing, what which was ensuring that when I'm reflecting on my performances, I'm also allowing myself to see the ways in which I performed to the standard that I expect, we tend to just, you know, beat ourselves up for the ways in which we didn't, but the more I can shine a light on the things that I did well, whether it was responding quickly to a complication that would have otherwise taken me way out of the game, that's how I'm going to earn confidence. And then that confidence comes back to the starting line. The next time I'm in the high stress situation that says, Hey, this is not my first rodeo. I've been in these moments before. So it's a set of practices that hinges upon awareness and I would say consistency that the more we do these things we're setting ourselves up to step into a moment that is uncertain and I and I love your field especially you know we always joke the two questions that anybody could ask you at any given time hey rob what are you facing on the shift tomorrow i have no idea do you think you'll be ready to handle whatever you face I sure hope so. <laughs> That's the best you have. If I'm an accountant, I can reasonably predict, yeah, I'm working on these cases in this file. There's some certainty there. So what we can do is put ourselves in the best possible position to be in a state that might facilitate the experience of flow. And then more importantly, not if, but when we get disrupted, how quickly can we steer ourselves back? We keep
1: talking about resuscitation. So let's use that. We'll use that instead of, instead of golf. And I, I think first off, you're not going to have the true flow state as a rookie. You know, going in there cold, you're just not. Yeah, you think you don't like have the skill. You know, yeah, you can you can train and you can sim and you can be pretty 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 good, but there's only so much that that can teach you. Can teach you pretty yep. good, but cannot teach you great. I remember the first several resuscitations, I was a soup sandwich. <laughs> it was just sloppy and not knowing. And thankfully, there were people there to pick up the slack. Yeah, Learning by almost osmosis. And then I think it was probably five or so, maybe five or 10 years into attending hood, I started thinking about what were the moments that were disruptive? What were the small moments? It reminds me of... Practicing a musical instrument. Most of a musical piece you can get, usually even if it's not too hard, but then there's these little tiny transitions that just like trip you up and blow the whole thing. You don't have to practice the whole piece. And I think this is what you're saying. You focus on that one measure, call it practice block. And so, so you practice that thing over and over and then you integrate in it. And I, I think about... Um, two things that really used to disrupt my flow, disrupt my thinking, because you get to this point like, okay, person's coming in, I got this, I got that. This thing happens and you are lost. And those moments where I didn't know what was going on with the person, I didn't know where I was in this resuscitation and I didn't know what to do next. And I would feel myself in those times just oh my gosh, I am lost. And I'll tell you 20 years in, there were times when I still felt lost, but I had thought back, okay, what can I fall back on when I am lost? It reminds me of martial arts training. When I would go to black belt classes, you know, usually you're an instructor, right? You're teaching, but then you come with the master and the master teaches you all this stuff. 90% of the time we practiced basic techniques. The master instructor would really just work on the nuance of what you're doing, your, your, your transitions and your movement. So it was, what are the basic things that I know that I can build off of? So I I would just say, all right, let me fall back. I don't know what's going on. I don't know where I'm going, but what's happening with airway. Breathing, circulation, the neurologic system, and just and and just fall back onto that basic pattern that I knew. It's almost you know what it, it's like resetting that golf swing. It is. Yeah, it's just I've got to pause here because this person's going to die if I don't get it together. And I found that to be so effective. And actually, that comes back from the '90s when I saw this guy who was like the the surgeon surgeon. He was the man and, you know, and he even talked like this and we were doing ICU rounds in the surgical ICU. And, you know, you've got a crowd of 20 people and doctors and pharmacists and nurses and respiratory therapists, like the whole team is surrounding this guy, holding court in the surgical ICU. And he said, I think this is where it planted that seed. He said, I have no idea what's going on with this patient. I don't even understand what these numbers are. So he gets out this old tattered book that he had had since medical school. He said, I got to go back through this. And he starts reading off the basic interpretation of what this is of, okay, let's just go back to the basics and just break this down into its elementary level of understanding. And it was amazing just watching him do this Is oh, okay, here's what's going on with this guy. Here's what we need to do. It was like a, like a rocket ship taking off. It went from, oh, let me tap back into the basics to boom,
0: mastery. Well, look at the shift that happened there, right? So in the instance that he wasn't aware, the focus shifts from the external environment, you know, picking up the signs and figuring out the case and talking to your coworkers and all the rest. All of a sudden, there's this complication that comes up. And the complication is, oh my God, I don't know what the hell I'm doing in this moment. So now the focus goes internal to me. It's on I, me. The shift that happens in that moment, Rob, is we become self-conscious, right? Right. That surgeon who said, I don't know what the hell to do and and what we're going to do and I don't even know what these numbers mean. You can appreciate already that's going to sort of trigger a a stream of distracting thoughts on the inside, uh, some concomitant emotional reactions to frustration or a little bit of anxiety or a little bit of fear, not level 10 or anything. But point being, I already don't know what we're doing and now I'm even more distracted as a result of being aware that I don't know what I'm doing. What do we do in a moment like that? One of the things we can do is shift our attention back to the task. That's where algorithms and little processes come into play. I'll tell you a great story, two good stories that illustrate that. One involves Peyton Manning. One of his old coaches, Bruce Arians, and Bruce Arians is now the head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. When Peyton first got into the league, the NFL, Bruce Arians was his offensive coordinator. And so here you had... Peyton Manning, who's just renowned for having cerebral powers like you would not believe in in football. And so he had a tendency, I guess, to become overwhelmed with stuff, just information and and possibilities and and all the rest, sort of analysis to paralysis, perhaps. So there was one time where Bruce Arians noticed him in the warmups, and he started, you could just see he was getting lathered up, Peyton was, and he's Looking at the opposing team and, oh, they got this guy playing this slot. What are we going to do here? This, that. Coach could just tell. He's just, the engine's starting to run hot. So he says to me, he says, in a way that, you know, with a little bit of fire, he says, Peyton, you know, what in the hell are you doing worrying about, you know, what coverage they're going to run or this or that? I've been watching you in your warmup and, and your your skills have been shoddy in what I've seen thus far. Your backup has been terrible. You've not been planning on this foot Point being, it was a little bit of a Jedi mind trick. Now, all of a sudden, Peyton Manning was given information that says, hey, something specific to the task its not showing itself to be in a, a fine state today. So guess what he starts doing? Now he's just hammering on his backdrop, Peyton Manning, trying to figure out the small nuances in terms of his steps and all that. So he's no longer thinking about the d- external distractions. He's focusing on what he control the task at hand. Make sure my mechanics, my fundamentals are sound. So that's one of the ways when we become distracted in performance that we can shift our attention back to go from internally focused, self-conscious worrying about me and fearing failure and what's it going to mean, et cetera, to, well, wait a sec, if I can shift my attention to what is relevant to the task, looking at the handbook like that surgeon does, asking my colleagues some questions, taking a few deep breaths. And, And not only that, Rob, I'm a big believer of in those situations having a preformed algorithm already, which brings me to my second story. So there's a physician, I've talked to for quite a few years and she's an anesthesiologist and she was uh, struggling uh, with the pressure to perform a, a very specific procedure. After a while, it really wasn't about her ability to do that procedure. It was just the sense of fear and trepidation that was trying to weave itself into that moment. And once it did, then it did nullify to some degree, her ability to execute what she could. So we started to work backwards from that, and we knew what it was, and we knew that it's just the fear itself beginning to hijack her focus. And so we had a strategy that she would utilize in terms of mindfulness to be ready for those thoughts and feelings. But then we also had a preformed algorithm that she would engage in. She would remind herself, you know, it was uh, epidural was the procedure. And she would remind herself, what is an epidural? An epidural is a series of steps. What are the steps? Here are the steps. The first thing you need to do is anchor here. Be aware of this, that, and the other thing. When you hit a point of resistance, be sure to stop. We had this whole thing worked out such that over time, she did not have to worry about if she was going to experience those distracting thoughts and feelings. She knew that she probably would. What was more important is is that when she experienced them, She very quickly was able to shift her attention towards the task, these very specific set of skills and algorithmic types of steps that we had come up with that essentially now absorbed her attention in a more constructive direction, and she was able to perform through. Is there evidence that your performance is objectively better
1: when you're in a flow state, or at least a flow state is reported? Or is it just that your subjective experience of what's happening is better?
0: Right. And I suppose it can be both. There will be times where by virtue of being in a flow state, obviously, we will perform at our maximum capabilities, which you'd like to think would equate into a, an outstanding performance. Equally, there are times where, again, being in a state of flow allows us to feel and focus optimally. But let's say we don't have as much talent or skill as the person that we're performing against if it's a sport thing. So it does not always guarantee it necessarily, uh, but I think it would make the prospect of it a heck of a lot more uh, realistic and possible. There's these different areas where you have
1: strength with attention. I mean there's you know personality yeah. strengths or whatever. Is your advice to say go all in on your strength you know, someone's like, oh, I want to be this way. I want to be this way. And then you do like a personality inventory or an attention inventory. It's like, wow, you're really strong in this other area. Maybe you should focus on something that plays into that. Or is it, okay, you're really weak in this one thing. Here are skills to build it up. I mean, I I know that there are different schools of thought on shore up your weakness, or, you know, if you're strong in this, capitalize on it. Sure. What's your advice
0: on what to tap? the focusing style, if you will, ideally that we mobilize is the one that fits best the situational demands that we are in. So if you are in, let's say a vocation that requires at various points in times, shifting your attention, you know, in the role that you do, sometimes it's full situation awareness, directing the team, making sure that the big picture is being taken care of. And then as I said to you in the next breath, you're focusing very microscopically on something procedural or reading a chart or whatever it might be. So if your vocation is one that necessitates bouncing back and forth, then I'm of the camp that says, then we better find ways to bolster up the styles at which that perhaps you're not as natural in, uh, because in doing so that's, that's a prerequisite for being overall effective in what you do. So let's figure out ways to do that. If you said to me, no, you know what? I, I like to shoot darts, and I'm a professional dart shooter, and that's all I need to do. And so I'm very good at narrowly focusing in on my finger and a target. Uh, but where I really struggle is, uh, hey, afterwards in the, in the pub with beers being really gregarious and outgoing, I'm not so concerned about that. The fact of the matter, though, is in your line of work, and this is what I advocate or, or, or recommend to people, it requires attentional flexibility. Because in the span of one minute, you might bounce back from all four of those different styles of focus because you need to. I don't see myself as someone
1: who has a lot of, of attentional flexibility. I can get on one task and just get on it for hours. For example, you know, if I when I'm doing a a medical podcast. And I'm doing the emphasis on it, right? Somebody says something. It's like, Oh, that, that needs some elaboration. And so I do a, a voiceover, which mm-hmm. is a couple minutes of emphasis and it'll take, you know, sometimes a day or two to read the articles and synthesize. And if I'm doing that on that one specific question, I hear no noise and I'm just here and hours can go by. I can create, I can synthesize in the emergency department in a resuscitation. Or even in a single patient interaction, fully there, fully there. Mm-hmm. When there were multiple things calling to my attention, I would often spin my wheels and become extremely inefficient. Mm-hmm. And and I kind of developed little uh, hacks on what to do about XYZ, but I would see docs who were really good at it and yeah, and... You know, even talk to them like, oh yeah, whatever, you know, it's just the busier the better. When I was busy and I got a whole bunch of people at once and I do all this, I would just like feel crushed inside. And the irony is that's the nature of the job. And I wonder if I went back and I took a personality inventory or an attention inventory, it's like, oh, you really excel in this one area, but in this other one, you have difficulty if I came to you and I was like, oh, I'm thinking about what I want to go into, you know, emergency medicine really seems like it's the it's the way for me. Say, so, you know, you might want to think about something that is more in line with your strength and your natural proclivity, or would you say, okay, you are weak in one of the key areas that this requires. Here's what you need to do to strengthen it.
0: Yeah. If the person really wanted to go into this thing, I would choose B. Let's see what we can do. Let's see if we can d- develop it. I'll use the example that you shared of your own self. Instantly I'm thinking it, so it's transition points. Okay. So I have a natural comfort level tendency to want to completely zoom in as far as my focus, give me a singular task. And I can say sort of F you to the world, man, I'm in my sweet spot in your line of work in the emerge. Every 17 seconds or whatever it is, you're being interrupted. So the ability to stay in my sweet spot is going to be a a tall task, given the vocation does not necessarily speak to doing that type of focusing all the time. So for me, it's when you said, ah, and then I get pulled away, let's say, for some reason. I get interrupted by a colleague or or a nurse or something, and it's in that moment that I am sort of treading water. I've transitioned from my natural preference to be narrowly focused And now I've had to zoom out and deal with, let's say, multiple things happening all at once. So for me, it's about how do I effectively make that transition? Because it's not that when I'm in that situation, once I've gotten over the fact that my attention has been disrupted and I calm down a bit and someone's saying, okay, Rob, you know, here's our options. You know, what do you think is the best way of doing it? I'm sure in that state, now you're able to answer effectively. You would not have been the physician you were for all those years if you couldn't. But it's the stress and the frustration of being disrupted in the first place that causes me some concern. So again, if I can get better at managing those transition points, if I can recognize that, ooh, there's a bit of a lag time, you know, I can also then begin to shift my external environment. I, I can say to whoever's interrupting me, just one sec, okay? I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to re-ask what it was that you said to me not because I'm stupid, not because I have a bad memory, but because for me, it's painful at times to make that shift from a really narrow focus to something that is much more broader, shall we say. And If I have a strategy then to navigate the transition points more effectively, then I feel a bit more in control. I still may not be the best multitasker in the world. I still may not be that it's my preference to go full, broad, external, you know, managing the room, leading the room, that sort of thing. But I can certainly do it. And there are some things that I can do to your point to get better at it. And so if that was the case and someone really wanted to do that thing, I'd say, go for it, figure out ways to make these, these weaknesses a little less so a little less glaring. They're maybe not going to become strengths, but we can certainly be uh, improved in that area. All right. This is going to sound Weird, but I love watching archery <laughs>
1: on TV. I don't know what it is about it. It's just the most fascinating thing. And you know, I've shot a bow and we've got a you know, bow and hour here. We've we've got all the, the stuff, and I've shot archery with my kids and, and the like. And um, and it's just there's so much to it. When I think about a mental game, and I want to get back to those moments when you're outside of the central focus and how to come back into it. And we talked about this quite a bit, but for whatever reason, this conversation made me think about that particular skill, which I feel like is a distillation of absolute concentration and any disruption of that, like even a millimeter physical movement is the difference between not just like first and second place, gold medal, and not even making the final round. So let's say I'm an archer. I'm holding the bow. I've got the arrow pulled back. And just like there's a little <laughs> in, in the mind, how to come back into that state, how to come back, because I think that that plays back into the recess bay when you have to be focused. And then you have just like a little bit, like even a millimeter off. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I, I'm not quite down the rabbit hole yet. I'm not quite down the rabbit hole. I can come back. How do I come back?
0: Well, it's funny you say archers. I, I have a lot of experience working with archers. I worked with uh, Jay Lyon, who's a Canadian archer. He uh, competed in 2008 Olympics, uh, finished top 10 in the world. So I know all about the little pre-performance uh, routines, the pre-shot routines. Oh my and gosh, your this might point, be the best question ever asked on a <laughs> podcast. <laughs> this is weird. I promise you we didn't tee this up, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah. And and I'll, it's funny. I'll tell you a little quick story. Part of your answer is if we're using archery. And this might sound funny. It, yes, having the confidence and the courage, that's the word that might sound funny. The courage to reset because when you're in that moment at full draw, And everybody's watching you and you're competing, you know, to get the Olympics or at the Olympics or or what have you, we start to wrestle with that. And, And then what happens is you, it feels like you've been holding that bow for 10 minutes. It's probably been three seconds, but it feels like a lot longer. If we're not ready to deal with the fact that we feel uncomfortable in that moment and have the courage to put that bow down and reset, you know, earlier you mentioned the golfer who, you know, let's say middle of the back swing, swing. Camera goes off. They just completely reset, put the club back in the bag, start. It takes courage to do that. The easier thing to do is just let it, let it fly. And that was one of the things that we worked really hard at was seeing those moments as having the courage to step back. Oh, interesting. Pause and to reset oneself because we know that to your point, Rob, and especially with archery, it's why it's such a great example. For some context for your listeners, the Olympic archery distance is 70 meters. It's like a football field's length in the wind with light arrows. And you're you're trying – and it's amazing too. When I used to watch them uh, train, I, gosh, I watched so many archery sessions. It's not a straight line. Like you literally loop this thing in. Like it, it follows an arc. So it kind of comes down – at a different angle. To oh, yeah, the it's, bullse- high, it's high school physics, man. In action. Totally. And the bullseye itself, you know, is maybe, I don't know, in, less than two inches in diameter, I would think. And so the rings go in accordance. I mean, obviously the bullseye would be a 10 score. Each concentric ring outward would be last nine, eight, seven, and, and off it goes. And at that level, if you shot a seven, you're done. If you shot one seven, you're done. So that adds even more importance to having the courage to reset. Just stop. It's not like we're taking a 20-minute break here. Put the bow down, take that deep breath, get your focus back to where it should be. Quickly assess whether there's an actual problem, right? Could be your technique, it could be the, the bow's nut, you know, t- to the right aiming for the the distance in the wind, et cetera. So there could be some information there that we need to access more often than not, it's just nerves. And so I'm not going to allow those to get in the way because at that level, as you said, a, a slight distraction, when I'm trying to get a friggin' arrow, 70 meters into a bullseye might mean the difference between a 10 and a seven. So it takes courage to stop yourself from doing so. It takes courage in a recess. I would think to say, like that surgeon did. I don't even know what the hell's going on right now, but I need to just take five seconds to get my shit together. And if anybody has something they can offer, I'm all ears. That takes courage. I want to
1: finish up. I guess it's with the big picture. Someone is entering into a field that is high demand. As they start this, they think, I would love to get to the point where I could tap into where I could become the flow state. Mm -hmm. So if you're starting at ground zero, you know nothing. You haven't even had your orientation yet, but you think that's the image I see of myself as someone who is a master at this. And that's the feeling that I want to have. Mm -hmm. Starting at ground zero, how can someone develop the ability to get into the flow state? And this is even a harder question thrown in the bonus round. If they use that, in their training for that very particular thing, can that apply to every other aspect of life or is whatever you're training to do specific to that domain?
0: Let's handle the first one first. Uh, I think it was George St. Pierre, the famous mixed martial artist who said, the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing, Rob. So we'll start with your (laughs) first question. (laughs) I think when I, when I consider, okay, ground zero, don't know anything, don't know you know, where to start? what do I do? So first and foremost, I would need to know a few uh, bits of information about the specific demands of whatever it is I'm stepping into. So if this is someone who wants to be whatever, a lawyer and has no conception other than watching a few films of what it's like to be a lawyer, I want to first see if I can get some exposure. like get some actual experience or secondhand experiences to what are some of the specific challenges and potential distractions that come with being in that profession. Next thing I need to know is know myself. Who am I? Knowing that in certain situations, under stress, under pressure, under deadlines, if I get critiqued or challenged, et cetera, how do I respond to those kinds of things? I don't need to have had a, a single day as a lawyer to know whether or not if someone challenges me, I'm someone who rises to that or shrinks down or gets distracted or what have you. So I have to collect some of the data because as we've said, getting into the state of flow, the, the, the specific things we talked about earlier, I have to practice hard, I have to learn methods of controlling my arousal, I have to have confidence, I have to have love for what I do. That's sort of the brass tacks. What we're more concerned about is what would take me out of that state. Distractions everywhere. So if I'm aware of, of how it is that I might be affected... By certain distractions that could come with being part of whatever that hypothetical vocation is, then I can work backwards from those things. So, first and foremost, it is to recognize who am I and how might who I am be problematic given the situational demands of whatever that thing is. That's a hard ask, isn't it? It is. But the next part of it is if that's not possible and I just start to get my feet wet, you know, if I I'm starting to go to law school and, and maybe I'm sitting in on court cases or this or that. Slowly but surely, I am going to get access to some of the information that's experiential that I would not have, but that will sensitize me to, Oof, wow, there's a moment I don't know how well I would respond or there's a moment that would really take me aback in a way that might make it difficult to focus and articulate myself effectively so I have to figure out what it is I don't know. Some of that is the course of a whole career, figuring it out. But some of the main stumbling blocks, let's say, I could probably intuit just by knowing myself and having some sense as to what the, the demands of the particular vocation are. Does that training to, you know, training specifically so that
1: you can enter that flow state, which is, I mean, kind of mastery, right? It's like, it's all deliberate yeah. practice. It's all kind of different paths to the same mountaintop. Does that make it easier to achieve flow states in other areas of your life because you, you know that, you know how to do that, you know what that looks like, what that feels like, you know who you are, or is it, you know what, you need to go through that process for all of those other things too, the same exact process. There's not
0: domain transfer. The process itself, being comfortable with it, sort of knowing what the component parts are and, and how to begin to execute it, yeah, that would certainly carry over. But to your point, you kind of are starting from scratch if we're saying that whatever the next thing is you want to apply it to also necessitates having a certain level of skill, which would breed the confidence, which would minimize the distractions and so on and so on. It, it, it's all It's like an ecosystem with all these parts working in accordance with one another to produce the outcome. So let's say instead of being a lawyer, that same person says, hey, you know what? I'm a terrible communicator with my partner. I want to be the Michael Jordan of communicating with my partner at home. So I'd step back and go, okay, well, what are the ways in which knowing myself that I fail in that department? You know, I come home from a long day and my partner's ready to receive me and I'm not ready and I'm distracted from work. And I kind of half-ass the conversation and he or she gets upset as a result of that. And, ah, you know, so I'm already gaining some insight as to what are the areas where I become distracted and need to be better. So then I start to think, okay, well, what would I do in that situation? What would be the the practice air quotes? Well, I'm going to make a note to myself that as I'm driving home from work after my busy day uh, as a lawyer, recognizing that the moment I step into the house, my partner is hoping to experience me in a certain type of way. And that if I am mindfully aware of that and start to put myself in a situation ready to bring that to the moment, then guess what? Slowly but surely, I am becoming better. I'm developing the necessary skill to be a better communicator and by extension, a better partner. The more times that I can catch myself and do that and step through the door and it's a genuine, hey, honey, I'm home and let's talk a bit about your day and this and that, I get more confidence in my ability to do that. The more confidence I get in my ability to communicate better, the more confident I feel overall in terms of the partner I'm being to my significant other. If we start to recognize the component parts and apply them very specifically to other areas of our life, roles, activities, whatever we might do, I absolutely think that, that it can pay the same dividends for sure. The process is similar, but yes, it is a starting from ground zero if developing the necessary skill is part of it. Jason?
1: always such a delight and a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And I'm looking forward to whatever box of goodies we unwrap next on our next (laughs) session.
0: (laughs) Thanks so much, Rob. Always a pleasure.
1: Flow state, not really a shortcut, not really a hack to get this. It's practicing hard, but it's got to be deliberate practice. Meaning taking the lessons learned from the last repetition and applying it to the next one and so on and so on. And hours and hours after that leads to compounding returns. It's learning to control your level of arousal. Breathing can help as we talked about in the art of breathing, but the specifics of controlling your level of arousal, that's going to be specific for you. It's confidence in what you're doing. You know, if you're overthinking it, If you're uncertain about your next steps, then flow's unlikely. If you feel like you've got this and you've really got this, it's much more likely. It's loving what you do. Now that sounds, you know, kind of a a little bit different than these very specific strategies, but loving what you do, you know, when there's joy in action, then as the saying goes, it doesn't feel like work. Part of flow is knowing what will take you out of that state. And also having awareness of how you're gonna be influenced by distractions. And that is going to wrap it up for today. Thank you, Jason Brooks, as always, for sharing the wisdom. If you want to get a hold of us, you can do it through the website, stimuluspodcast.com. If there's any topics you'd like to hear, Jason and I dissect, or just any other topics you'd like to hear in the show, hit us up. In fact, several of our upcoming episodes are from listener requests and I'll tell you, that's just the most exciting stuff because it's things that I may never even have thought of but are still important, super important to break down and discuss. If you dig the show, throw in a rating on iTunes. It helps the community grow. And until next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.